be clear about the boundaries and your communication about what's going to work and what's not going to work, and then commit and actually do those things. So if you say you're going to be home for dinner at seven o'clock every day, like be home for dinner at seven o'clock every day or pick up the phone and call. I think the things that really hurt the balance in our family was not knowing, not knowing, are you going to be here or not be here? Hey there. Welcome to Startup Dad, the podcast where we dive deep into the lives of dads who are also leaders in the world of startups and business. I'm your host, Adam Fishman. And in this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Fareed Masavad. Fareed is the former chief development officer at Reforge, a product leader at Slack, Instacart, Zynga, and many more. He's also the dad of two kids. Fareed and I talked about what it was like to be raised by his mom and the biggest lessons he learned from her, what it's like to meet your wife in elementary school, the trials and tribulations of having two teenagers, and his earliest memories of being a dad. We cover some of the painful lessons that Fareed learned as a dad and the importance of consistency when it comes to balancing your career with your family. We also talk about that ever so popular elephant in the room topic with older kids, technology, and phones. I learned a lot about Fareed and took away several valuable lessons from our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Today, I'd like to welcome Fareed Masava to the program. Fareed is a friend of mine, someone who I've now come to work very closely with at Reforge. Fareed hails from the East Coast. He started his career as a house painter in the, in the summers, like so many titans of industry. Went to Brown, had a kind of a cool career at Pixar, Zynga, Runkeeper, Instacart, and Slack, and is now the CDO, Chief Development Officer. Is that what That's that stands correct. for? That is yep. what it stands for. At Reforge, and is an investor and advisor. So please welcome Fareed. First question for you about your background. What does a Chief Development Officer do? What are you developing? It's a great question. It turns out now on LinkedIn, I get a lot of job offers and recommendations from the algorithm for like, development offices and nonprofits and universities and stuff because they think I'm a fundraiser, which is not what I am. You know, my role at Reforge is relatively unique, I think, to our business and what we do. I'm responsible for two major parts of what we do. Number one is the development of content. So our programs are additional content that we're building right now, our experiences around that and there's a number of different teams. We have a team of almost 50 different people who help develop that content. And they do it in conjunction with our partners, experts, operators, people who have done the job like yourself, Adam, our executives mm -hmm. and residents, our subject matter experts for our different programs. And so I also am responsible for our partnership team that identifies those people and then connects them with our content development team to build content and then works closely with our product team in order to get that into the experience. So I think a naive way of looking at this is our product development org run by Matt Greenberg owns sort of the digital experience and the product experience and interactions. And our teams are responsible for putting interesting stuff in there. So when Brian and I were trying to figure out what to call this job, content didn't feel like the right thing because there's more to it than that. Yeah. Production didn't seem right. So we landed on development. We're in the business of 
developing expertise and putting cool. that into the product. Do you know anyone else who has the same title as you that doesn't work at a nonprofit? I don't. I've seen chief content officer type roles, yeah. creative officers at different places, but I don't think that's exactly a reflection of what I do. So um, no, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Well, you were a special snowflake. That's great. I'm sorry. I've you. worked hard to be that. <laughs> When I think of Farid, I think special snowflake. That's yeah. that's defy it. categorization. More honestly, though, it is worth like just saying I have generally in my career tried to find unique angles for myself and unique sort of opportunities that I think allow me to leverage what I've done in the past to do something new and unique. I've never really been a ladder climber, if that makes sense. And everybody kind of says that, but I've like the idea of just like oh, my job is to go from L4 to L5 to L6 to L7 to M1, M2 or whatever in an organization has never been interesting or appealing to me. And as a result, I've ended up jumping industries. I've ended up jumping job titles, job roles. And this one's sort of an extreme one where it's like not even, it's sort of product and product inspired. And I use product skills every day, but it's not a product job. I don't have product managers who report to me. So, you know, that's scary. But it's also kind of fun because you're just like building on something new every single time. Cool. Cool. Tell me a little bit more about your background because it's been really interesting. I mean, even starting at Pixar, right? Yeah. Like what you did at Pixar is probably very different from what you do now. So like, tell me about some of the sort of more interesting things you've done in your career. As you mentioned, I spent the first seven years of my career after college working at Pixar Animation Studios. My first film was Finding Nemo. I was a technical director, and I'll explain what that job is. After that, I worked on a couple short films and then moved to Cars, where I worked on the characters team there, and then from there to Wally, and then up. And after that is when I left. The work I did at Pixar was super fun and interesting. I mean, imagine it's a dream job for a computer science student who studied computer graphics in college and did some like little research paper to work at Pixar. And I was lucky. It was sort of a couple good lessons learned from startups. I was lucky. They were expanding pretty dramatically at that time. Just moved into a new building. We're trying to move from one film every two to three years to one every 18 months. That required a massive scaling of the organization. What I did there is actually, honestly, has inspired a lot of my role in product management. I wasn't interested in working in the pure tools group which is just like building the software that then gets used by people to put pixels on the screen. But I was writing code. I was a technical person. I'm not an artist. I try my best to have like some artistic skills, but I'm not an artist. I'm more on the technical side of the fence, especially for a Pixar person. But I wanted to put pixels on screen. So I wrote code that actually like ended up putting experiences on the screen. And so like product management, a lot of this is about like, What are the right trade-offs to make in order to deliver a great story and deliver a great shot? And so I worked on, you know, visual effects type work, a lot of procedural animation, like making stuff move based on physics, that kind of thing. Bubbles and silt and sand on Finding Nemo, car suspension systems and ground interactions and sort of automated motion for cars treads on Wally. I wrote all the code that makes the treads roll, those kinds of things. And um, eventually just more of a leadership job as well. I was a manager by the time I left there. That's awesome. So like a big part of your job is just making things look realistic, right? Making cartoons look like they would be in real life. Well, not exactly realistic, but real-ish, I think is the way I would describe it. And that's like the fun part of it and why I think it, you know, as I connect the dots backwards uh, to use the Steve Jobsism, 
is that it's really about delivering the right product. So it's not about just realism. Is it real enough to tell to be plausible, but also to reinforce the story and reinforce the product? Right. I'm going to actually need you to take a look at the suspension of my car. It's a little <laughs> shaky when I hit the brakes right now. So I don't know I'm sure you, about I'm that. Sure you... <laughs> awesome. Well, so, all right, I want to change and talk a little bit more about non-professional you. So tell me about your life growing up. You're from the East Coast, right? I think you grew up in Connecticut. Tell me about the life growing up and your family, your parents. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town outside of Hartford called Avon, Connecticut. It is a relatively uninteresting place. Sorry to anyone listening to this who might be from there. There was about 10,000 people when I lived there. And it is, as I jokingly call, a suburb of a second-rate city. So it is, you know, it is not a suburb of New York or a suburb of Chicago or a suburb yeah. of San Francisco where you can hop on a train and go somewhere. It's just, it's almost sort of on the rural divide. Like the next town over is pretty much, you know, like, you know, Northwest Connecticut, you know, it's yeah. like the real woods. It's still New England, yeah. but like starts to get kind of sparse. But, you know, it was a bedroom community kind of place. It was pretty boring. I didn't really enjoy it there. But, you know, a fine place to grow up. Ride bike places, mm -hmm. get a lot of freedom, independence, going around town, that kind of thing. I actually uh, was raised by my mom. My dad died when I was young, when I was seven years old. That's when we moved to that town. And I have a younger brother. His name's Omid. He's a pretty great human being who actually is a dad himself, but lives in Germany with his wife and his three children, twins. Wow. Twin one-year-olds and a three-year-old. Wow. So grew up there. I went to high school in another town in Connecticut, but like, you know, classic immigrant upbringing, like what was important was school. And working hard <laughs> and figuring yeah. out how to get the hell out of town. How much younger than you is your brother? They were only 18 months apart. So we're, oh, nice. we're pretty okay. close in age. We were two grades apart. Did the two of you terrorize your mom? Like, were you like wreaking havoc in the town or were you pretty well behaved, you know, upstanding kids? I always got pretty good grades. I always like worked pretty hard in school, you know, did what I needed to do to stay off of the radar <laughs> in a lot yeah. of ways. No, I don't think we terrorized them. I was a vegan. In high school, okay. that terrorized my mom. I'd stay out late. I'd like do weird stuff. You know, I grew up with meeting a bunch of other like random punk rock kids from around Hartford. They do exist. And like, we'd like go to shows and drive all over New England and stuff like that to go do that kind of stuff. But like, you know, I was generally a good kid. I like got good kids yeah. and went to school and that kind of thing. Have you said farewell to your vegan past? You're no longer a vegan. Yeah, I quit being a vegan and vegetarian in college. Uh, it just wasn't a okay. lifestyle fit anymore. So yeah, as you can tell from my physique here, I'm not, I don't. Hey. I don't. <laughs> hey, you know, we're all rocking the dad bod these days. So tell me, was there, are there any particular things that you took from your mom sort of raising you and your brother as a single mom, any sort of like wisdom that she instilled in you or anything that you've sort of translated into your adult life now? Yeah. I mean, one is independence. Like at the end of the day, you kind of own your own success in life in the world. I learned that from my mom. You know, there were a lot of like hard things that had happened with jobs and careers, et cetera, but she always just like worked her butt off to like provide and make mm -hmm. a good life for us as kids. So absolutely independence, like, hey, you have to be in a place where you can act and drive and like be successful in the world on your own. For me, like you joked about the house painting job, but like a lot of that was about 
having my own income, having my own. It was the highest paying job I could find in the summer as a 17 year old kid. Right. Sure. And it had unlimited overtime. So it was just like, the more I worked, the more money I made. And that meant freedom, especially growing yeah. up in a small town in New England where there's not much to do. Money is gas. Gas is freedom. Like that's what we needed to be able to do to go places and do things. And, you know, you didn't need a lot, but you needed your own. And I didn't like being reliant on having to ask other people. So I definitely learned that from my mom. The second is the value of education. You know, my, my family is Iranian. They came here in the late seventies. They came here because my mom and dad were both doctors. They came here for the residency. Education was what created that opportunity for them to leave that place and come here and provided the opportunity for them to stay here and build a life for us. And without that, my world would be dramatically different. You know, I was born in 1979. I'm 42 years old. The revolution was 1979. There's a world where if we had to go back, my life would be totally different. And that's driven by hard work, education, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And so for me, like school was, it was always like just driven into us, like school is opportunity and you got to really like, we like dig into that and care deeply about it. I think those are the two biggest lessons learned. Much like painting houses helped you put money in the gas tank. School helps you put, you know, brain power. Yeah. Helps that independence and, and mobility. Yeah. And look, I like computer science. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was super fun. I'm a mathy guy. I enjoyed all those sorts of things. But I'm not going to lie. I definitely chose it in part because I wanted to be able to like provide for myself the day I left college. I didn't want to have yeah. to go back to school again. I didn't want to have to like grind it out. It was an active choice. Turned yeah. out to be a at the time wasn't obviously the future, but like you know, yeah, has been lucky, lucky decision. Yeah. So tell me about life now. You have a, your family. Obviously, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be on here if you weren't a dad. You have a partner and you have two kids. So tell me a little bit about, like, how did you meet your wife? Tell me about your kids. How old are they? What are they into? My wife is actually from the same small town in Connecticut that I grew up in. If you ask my wife, she likes to tell the most embarrassing version of it possible, which is that we met when the two elementary schools in the town get together to play in the same band. Like that's when we first met. She played the French horn. I played the tuba or the trumpet at the time, you know? Yeah. Neither of us are musicians. That's just the origin story. But we actually were friends growing up. We were friends in middle school and in high school. We have not been dating since that time, but we were friends and we grew up together. We reconnected as I was in my senior year of college and she was just wrapping up. She was at Oberlin. Had some family members in Providence and was around, and we were hanging out, and that's how we got reconnected and basically together since then. So, we, you know, while we are not high school sweethearts, we have been a couple for now going on 20 years. Wow. We have two kids. We got married relatively young by today's standards in tech, in professional circles in the United States. We were. I think 26 and 27 when we got married and we had kids relatively soon after that. So my daughter, who is now a ninth grader in high school, was born in December of 2007, one year and two months after we got married. And yeah, that just sort of kicked off our journey. And our son, Kai, was born about 18 months or 19 months after that, June of 2009. And he's in eighth grade. So yeah, that's our family unit here. Right. 
So you got a ninth grader and an eighth grader. And Correct. it's funny that you and your brother are about 18 months apart and yeah. your kids ended up being the same. Like my brother and I are about the same number of years apart as my kids. Yeah, I think like things feel more normal and you know, yeah. the way you connect. I'm not gonna lie, we weren't like super planned about the exact like, you know, distance between those things. One of the <laughs> benefits or detriments of being young is, uh, you know, you don't have as exactly as much control over timing on some of these things as maybe if you're having kids later in life. But we were pretty much the first of our friends to have kids at that time. Yeah. And, you know, obviously by modern tech product yeah. type people standards, we were pretty young and early in that journey. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, you know, in the Bay Area, like you mentioned, people ha tend to have kids later, right? And there's yep. a whole process a lot of times. Many of my friends are quite a bit older than me and their kids are the same age as my kids. So tell me about like that decision about starting a family. I know you said it wasn't necessarily fully planned out, but like, how did you think about being sort of the youngest of your friend group, you know, yeah. to have kids? And why do you think that is that people here... You think they're just more career focused or, you know, they get more degrees or something like that? Or what do you think like kind of puts it off? It's a great question. I don't know if I can speak for anybody else, but I'll certainly talk about our own story and why we chose to have kids when we did. The first is that my wife is the youngest of four and she, you know, you talked about emulating what your own experience is. I think early on, imagine that maybe we would have a large family. Maybe we would have a bunch of kids. She's the youngest of four. She used to joke like, if they didn't have four, I wouldn't exist. So we should have four. That we were quickly disavowed on the four kids idea after we got into the real mix of having them. But I think number one was that, you know, my in-law, my wife's brothers and sisters were all having kids. They're all older, of course, mm -hmm. but still also had kids relatively young. And there's a cousin train. And it was clear yeah. that my brother was not going to be having kids anytime soon. So it was like, hey, if we want them to have a connection and relationship with their cousins mm -hmm. in some meaningful way. Like we should probably get going. I think that's sort of one reason. The other is just like, you know, people want to have kids, you know, and they want to yeah. start a family and they want to get going on it. And there was no real reason not to though, but I was apprehensive. I'll be totally honest. Like I didn't know if I wanted to be a dad, I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. I was not the kind of yeah. guy who was like, super into babies or kids or like hanging out right. with them when they were young. That is something that I have learned to do as a parent and it has changed my perspective. I like other people's kids now in a way that I wouldn't have if I didn't <laughs> have my own. The same way, this is going to sound bad. I'm not comparing my kids to animals, but I was never a dog person. But once we got a dog, I was like, I became a dog person. I yeah. feel very similarly about being a parent. I think, you know, honestly, if it were a hundred percent up to me, I probably would have said like, let's wait forever. But once I was in the experience, you sort of jump in, you dive in and you do it and you do it because you care about them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting what you mentioned there. And not a lot of dads talk about this idea of like not being sure if they're going to be a good dad. Although I think everyone feels this way, right? Yeah. We're not biologically wired to be like, yes, children, right? There's no like clock that's telling us there's no sort of like hormonal system yeah. or whatever. I'm not a scientist. So I think there's always some trepidation with becoming a dad, but you're right. You can wait forever and then it never happens. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is like, look, it's never the right time. It's, yeah. it just never is. I honestly like felt like it was going to be harder 
for my career. It would be harder for us to do certain things, to travel, to experience life, et cetera. But there were a couple of things that I think like pushed back on that. One was like, you know, we were like, look, just because you have kids doesn't mean you can't do things. People do have kids everywhere in the world. So there's like there's yeah. sort of that trigger. And yeah. then the second that's like, I know about myself, I'm an indecisive person and I will always like not do for life, big life decisions. I will always not do something. So yeah, like my wife did a lot of convincing, but I went with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. What about the dog? Who convinced you to get the dog? Was that the kids? The dog or was, that was the, like, yeah, the kids were driving the bus on the dog to start. There was a lot of lobbying, many years of it. I was always the no guy on the dog. I was not even just not a dog person. I was like, I don't even want that in my house. Yeah. But then it becomes a research project. So I like researching things and getting yep. into the details of what's, you know, everything. And once you start researching dogs, you're like, once I'm on the train for researching yeah, the thing, it's a good end and result. And so, uh, you know, we got pictures of these dogs and that was, <laughs> that was the end of that. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your wife. I think, if I'm not mistaken, your wife's a stay-at-home mom. Is that right? Or I would say mostly. She was working early when we had kids, but, you know, primarily works in the home. She does some freelance work. She does cool. some property management and some other like, you know, I would say sometimes 80% time, but sometimes 20% time types of flexible stuff. Mm. We have our apartment in our house, she manages that along with our neighbors and a couple other things like that. Odd cool. things here and there and, you know, runs our household. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think that's, you know, you have a bunch of questions about how you balance and like the short answer is that makes, creates a lot of space. I mean, it has trade-offs mm. obviously, but it creates a lot of space for me. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more later. I want to kind of go back to the very beginning with your kids. What are the earliest memories you have of being a father? Some people have very scary early memories and some have these like really touching, you know, ones. I'd love to hear Fareed's first memories. I have two that really stick out to me. The first I may have already told you or I told someone recently, which is, so we had our first at Alt Bates here in Berkeley. We mm-hmm. lived here in Berkeley. We moved to Boston for about five, six years, and then we moved back. So even though my daughter's like earliest memories are of being a kid in Boston, she actually was born in Berkeley. And the experience there was funny because one, we were like an age they never saw. <laughs> we were like 27, 28. They're yeah. like, we have people much older than you. I think at the time, the median age for a new mom in Berkeley was 37 or 38, which was the highest wow. in the country. And that was even wow. in 2007. But it was like, they have people in their late 30s and they have people in their teens and not a lot in between. <laughs> and so like, actually the real memory was the only thing you have to do to take a baby home from the hospital is show them a car seat. That's it. You're like basically cool. a kid, you know, a couple months earlier, I was like out till three in the morning with my friends drinking beer, being a total like, you know, 20 year old person with disposable income and no responsibility. And suddenly yeah. here I am. All I have to do is show that a car seat exists and I know how to click the buckles. And they're like, great. See you later. (laughs) And so you walk with this little bucket car seat to the parking garage and you click it in and you get in the car and you're like, holy shit. (laughs) Like this is real. 
you know, because yeah. like the hospital experience is like a different thing and it's exciting. People are visiting, like Liz's parents were there, like all this stuff is happening. People are dropping by all the time. It's this big, exciting thing. And then one day you're just sitting in the car and you turn over and you look behind you and you're like, yeah, I'm responsible for this human in their life. And I don't know. I remember that not being scary, but being like really surprising that they are letting us children go home with this child. And that being really sort of intense. The second really distinct early first dad memory I have is, you know, our daughter slept in, we had like a small house in Oakland. We had this Jack and Jill bathroom between two bedrooms. And so she slept there after she was like the first couple of months, I think this was about six, seven months. It was like, Hey, she can be in a crib in another room, but the doors are open. So it's adjacent. We can always hear everything. And I, you know, he'd wake up every few hours, bring the kid over, feed, put her back. She was a good sleeper. So three, four hours at a time. And I remember the first morning I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I slept the whole night. Uh, and I freaked out. Oh, you thought freaked it happened because I thought something bad had happened. Yeah. And I like, burst through the bathroom door basically into the other room and like jumped over and looked in the crib and was like, Oh God, sleeping baby. And like backed out slowly and was like, what just happened? Like this kid just yeah. slept through the night, you know, maybe she was probably five months yeah. old and it didn't happen every night. But I remember just like this dread, this just like yeah. existential dread that came over me, which was like something really terrible just happened and I can't believe I have to like experience this right now. Like the terrible yeah. thing was she slept through the night, which turned out to be an amazing thing. So yeah. So like just these moments of just like, I can't believe they're letting us do this. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Awful things could happen. Yeah. It was pretty consistent for a little while, but you get used to it. Yeah. I remember driving home. We also, both of our kids were born in Alta Bates. I remember driving home with our daughter, who's the older one, just like how slow I drove home. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to get on the freeway. I'm going to go very slow, make sure I stop, put on my turn signal. Mm -hmm. but yeah. Just people probably like laying on their horn behind me or something. <laughs> I, you know, I got a kid here. And I also love how you said she was a, a relatively great sleeper. And then you're like, you know, three or four hours at a time. I think that's yeah. one of the things a lot of parents don't realize. Like, a three hour stretch of your kid sleeping in the very beginning is like, wow. Like, yeah. holy crap, that's a lot of sleep. So, yeah, that's why parents look so haggard all the time after their kids are born. Yeah, and you realize, like, one of the meaningful benefits of having kids young is your body is much more resilient to things like that. Yeah, you, you were know? just up at 3 a.m. partying a few weeks before. Yeah. and you could rally and get up and go to work. I, you know, I don't know if it's because of years and years of this, of deprivation of sleep, et cetera. But like, if you asked me to get up every two, three hours right now, it would be really hard for me. Now the trade-off is there's opportunity for more help because you're further in your career, financially more stable, et cetera. But like, I remember at the time being 27 and being like, this is a thing 21 year olds should be doing. Yep. <laughs> like, you know, almost feeling old, even at the time, yep. even though being relatively young, because it yeah. is taxing. Like it's physically taxing in a way that I did not expect. Yeah. Going back to that sort of question about balance. A lot of the dads that I've talked to so far in the program have younger kids, right? They yeah. are those sort of 
older dads whose kids are just being born or are only a few years old or something. And you had your kids young and then you've managed to thrive, right? From the LinkedIn profile, at least, right? You're a C-level executive at a, sure. at a fast growing startup. So, you know, you mentioned that your wife, Liz, is pretty instrumental in creating that space for you. But how else have you managed to find this sort of strike the right balance between work, family, you know, now you would play the occasional round of golf, I understand. I How did you fit it all in, in the early years of your kid's life? So I didn't. I mean, in the early years of our lives, so I'll walk through a little bit of career story here to tell this. We had our daughter, Parisa, in December of 2007. We were living here in Oakland. I was still working at Pixar. And I had been exploring for the previous six to nine months or so, this idea of like, getting involved in startups, like mm -hmm. reading Hacker News, which was called Startup News at the time, went to YC Startup School, the actual like event in Palo Alto yeah. at Stanford. I was connecting with different founders. I was like hustling and trying to find work. And because we had a young child, you know, one of the conversations we had was where should we do this? You know, if you're going to move your job anyway, we should explore on the East Coast. And at the time, and still kind of is, Boston was another startup e-hub city. And so I actually joined an early-ish stage gaming startup called Conduit Labs. Early stage, I was probably the 10th employee or 11th or 12th, I don't know, first dozen sort of founding mm -hmm. team sort of level, you know, just before they were releasing a product when my daughter was about seven months old in April or May of 2008 and joined an early stage startup and was working pretty hard a lot of hours, yeah. doing a lot of stuff. And there were a lot of support systems in place to allow that to happen. We were living in the town that my wife's sister lived in. We were close to home and close to family. My wife and I have the kind of relationship where if one of us, she wants to go somewhere with the kids for a bunch of days, like I'm okay with that. Like that works for me. It works for both of us. But I won't lie, it was really hard and it was really taxing mm -hmm. on our relationship in a lot of different ways. It was hard to be a parent and staying up late, hanging out with kids, getting up early in the morning, but also yeah. commuting 45 minutes to work and then being there for 12 hours and then coming home and then being distracted, et cetera. But I think like, you know, one, it was a new job. So there was a recognition that was okay for a little while. But when it got to be two, three, four years, it wasn't okay anymore. And okay. I think around the time that we were acquired by Zynga and that's a well-known place for being a grind and it was really yeah. hard work and it was a huge weight on our relationship and on yeah. our family and it was not easy yeah. i don't think there was a lot of balance at that time and it basically meant that yeah i had to make some career choices based on how it fit for my family part of it was like oh instead of taking the train when it takes an hour and a half i'll either ride my bike or drive to work and get a parking spot yeah. and like there's little stuff like that you can do but the biggest things that have made a difference is consistency. And, you know, if my wife listens to watches this, she'll laugh at me because she knows that we don't do this as well as we could. But the biggest advice I have is just like, be clear about the boundaries and your communication about what's going to work and what's not going to work, and then commit and actually do those things. So if you say okay. you're going to be home for dinner at seven o'clock every day, like be home for dinner at seven o'clock every day or pick up the phone and call. I think the things that really hurt the balance in our family was not knowing 
not knowing are you going to be here or not be here? Are you leaving early? Or are you getting home late? How much work is it going to be? Do you need to work on Saturday or not? Like, it's this kind of communication that I think like getting so that and then second is making space. Like, hey, yeah. every Saturday, I am 100% like hanging out with the kids and doing stuff and that kind of thing. Yeah. Or every, th yeah. every other Thursday, we go out to dinner. We haven't always done this well, but we try to. And I find that whenever things are like strained, the balance is strained, creating some boundaries yeah. and then set check-ins can be a huge yeah. benefit to sort of like getting the world back together. We even do this now with teenagers because they're totally, uh, their needs are totally different, but like they're on their phones all the time. So now yeah. we got to like put a lot of the lessons learned of like startup obsessed yeah. dad who's distracted all the time actually works with teens too, which is like, yeah. well, we sit down for dinner, your phone is going over here and we're going to sit down yeah. and eat dinner, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Got to put the phone in the lead case. So it just shuts mm -hmm. everything down. So I wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned trade-offs and stuff that you had to make. Do you have any regrets is maybe the wrong word, but like if you could rewind the clock and give, you know, 27 or 30 year old Fareed a couple pieces of advice, you know, would you have done anything differently? Would you have picked different companies or would you have spent more time or spent less time or communicated differently or something like that? Like, so I guess yeah. sort of lessons you learned, painful lessons maybe that you've learned. Sure. So I think the first obvious one for me that I deeply regret, I'll be honest, is not taking more parental leave. At the time, like it's a little hard to imagine now because things like 12 week, you know, parental leaves, even for non-birthing parents and this kind of stuff are so common and it's come such a thing. But like, I felt like I had important stuff to do at work. And so I like yeah. took, I think like four, three or four weeks and then like maybe a day off here and there, but like got back to work pretty soon. And with our second, I barely took any time, maybe two weeks because I was at a startup and it was like really yeah. important that I be there, et cetera. And just in the grand scheme of things, like none of that sh shit was important. Like yeah. I could have taken another two weeks. It would have been fine. I could have taken another four and it would have been fine, especially at Pixar. That was a big company with like, you know, all kinds of redundancies and this kind of thing. Sure. And so like this careerism, not like this, oh, I have to be there. Like someone's relying on me. Someone's counting on me, et cetera. It was easy for me to feel that with work and harder for me to feel that with my family. And it took a lot of time to get there. Yeah. I always felt like, oh, I have to do this because someone else is asking me to kind of stuff. And mm. I regret that. I almost always regret when I have made decisions because of like someone amorphous, someone else's expectation of what I should be doing oh, I have these responsibilities at this job, so I can't quit it even though I'm miserable. Like, <laughs> I can't take an extra two weeks of leave because X, Y, and Z, I can't take this vacation. I still do this, just to be clear, so I'm not, like, fully cured. But, like, yeah. most of my regrets are based around that. Like, I think that extra time with my children would have been deeply meaningful. And I can't get that back. But yeah. I can always work hard. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Exactly. That's really fascinating. I have a similar sort of feeling around the amount of time that I took off when my daughter was born, which was not very much, but I was working yeah. at Lyft and Lyft was going bananas. And so, you know, yeah. it was, it was really important that you be there, Adam. Exactly. And I had felt really important. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. You know what you might tell younger Fareed if you were to get in a time machine and go back and, yeah. you know, conversation with him. I'd say 
go places with them when they're young. I think like we did some of that. We spent like a month in Mexico and Oaxaca with them when they were younger, but like we could have spent three, could have spent six, especially now with remote work. If remote work were a thing when I was like in that era of my life when they were young, I probably would not be tied down to a single place for a while for too long or at least once a year would go somewhere because like, man, when they get to be like in middle school, they have really strong opinions about like where they want to be and what they want to do. And they start to create meaningful attachments to their community outside of the family. And so it's much more disruptive to move them or take them somewhere. We're pretty much going nowhere for a meaningful amount of time until both kids graduate high school at this point. I don't think that's a hundred percent true. I think we could talk them into a year here, a year there, but like, I think that's a lot harder now than it is that now I like am looking to the end, like to when yeah. they're out of the house and yeah. like, that's going to create like new opportunity. Right. But there's like a barrier there. People are so apprehensive about traveling with the young kids, but honestly, it's like so much easier than it is to travel yeah. with kids who like don't want to do anything, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Speaking of which, tell me about what's it like? I guess you have two teenagers now. They're both 13 and 14. Okay. Yeah. What was it like? in the tween years and then what's it like now what's it like having a teenager there's probably just a ton of emotional energy coursing through your household all the time Um, yeah i mean i always like tell young parents i'm like look the amazing thing about having young kids is that like while it has lots of ups and downs it is monotonically mostly increasing in terms of like your ability to do the job and how hard it is from year to year a three-year-old There are some nuances, but three is easier than two, four is easier than three, five is easier than four, that kind of thing. It goes up and down here and there are different problems and it's never easy just to be clear, but like, especially from the physical like aspect and the amount to which you have to provide their needs and those kinds of things, it all goes down. And then that kind of like takes a turn at around 12 or 13, depending on the kid. Like it just like gets hard again. It just gets hard in a totally different way. It doesn't get hard because you're like, physically like exhausted and that they'll die if you don't feed them kind of like stuff or might, you know, walk off a ledge or might hurt themselves in some meaningful way. Their emotional lives become much more complicated and difficult and you have to support them in that way, just like totally differently. And just frankly, you just get really frustrated with them because they're like, you know, emotionally volatile or like, yeah, they look like adults and they sometimes talk like adults. So you assume they're going to be rational like adults and then they're not at all. Right. And so it's very confusing if that makes sense as a parent about like what to do. They react really strongly to things that happen in their social circumstances, et cetera. And our kids are different, but like you can definitely feel this, like their desire to differentiate from you grows like really fast. And that's hard as a parent. It has been harder for me with my second, my son, because he's the younger one. And it was always kind of like the kid who wanted to hang out and like be with us and do stuff with us, et cetera. And they both were, but like, you know, it's like, oh, that one can grow up because this one's still here. But as the younger one grows up, you're like, oh God, (laughs) like they're not kids anymore. And that can be like, you know, it's a little hard. It's a hard to look and be like, oh, you got home from school, you dropped your backpack and you left. And you like went to hang out with your friends, like, okay. Or you ate dinner for eight minutes and then immediately went on your phone to go do other stuff. Like that's different. So, um, 
I don't know if I have any advice. I'm still in the middle of it. I don't think I have any valuable advice to tell people, but it feels abrupt. It's like slow, then it's fast, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. This is a world that I'm about to get into with a 10-year-old. How old is your oldest? 10? Yeah. 10. Yeah, about to be Girl or boy? Girl. So, okay. Yeah. So it usually comes a little sooner with the girls, you know? So, yeah. You know, we're, we're a product, right? We're big frameworks people. Do you have any parenting frameworks or guardrails or things that you have put into place or learned throughout raising, you know, a 14 year old and a 13 year old? I don't know. I'm an instinctual parent in a lot of different okay. ways. I think this is a problem a lot of the time. Because yeah. an instinctual parent can be a reactive parent, especially with teenagers. There's a lot to react mm-hmm. to. There's this thing my wife says to me all the time that I try to like remember that becomes my mantra when I'm like dealing with hard situations with kids, which is like, remember you're the adult. Yeah. Like, the kids want to drag you into their like <laughs> world, right? Even uh-huh. a five year old. Wants you to like react like another five year old. Right? <laughs> it's yeah. like, remember you're the adult. So it's like, avoid like getting into a rational argument with a seven year old, yeah. even a 13 year old. Like, yeah, that, that's not the job, <laughs> you know? So yeah, yeah, remember you're the adult. That can often be very centering for me. The second, and this is hard because like growing up, I always felt like, oh, I was trying to avoid bad things happening to us, right? But like, learning to let go a little and like let them make their own mistakes can be really hard but i think like for instance with my daughter she had a lot of struggles with homework and getting it done and in you know seventh grade it was covid it was like a total mess like remote school the whole thing was very hard and honestly like it didn't matter how much i said do your homework or set frameworks or like structures etc like what helped her was like being in a situation where like an adult, there were consequences for not having done certain work that were hers to own and then realizing and having some sort of personal motivation to solve that problem and then taking initiative to do that. And I think a lot of like modern parenting structures are designed around like not trusting kids to make their own decisions. And I think having faith in them helps a lot. Like sometimes you got to just shut your fucking mouth and like let things happen and see where it goes and it's Can't hard save them because i'm like a smart person who like has all these great ideas about what they should be doing but like at the end of the yeah. day they don't want to do anything you think they should be doing you know especially right. as teenagers you gotta just like let them figure it out on their own you can nudge and you can give advice but the more prescriptive you are the more rebellious they are at yeah. least my kids so i try to stay out of that stuff if I can. No, I think that's great. I mean, I think we do have a lot of helicopter parenting these days where people mm-hmm. swoop in to try to like rescue or save their kid yep. or step in for them when they're going through a difficult situation with a teacher or whatever. And there, there are times where that is necessary, right? If they're not able to advocate for themselves and things like that. But sure. there are plenty of times where like, you just got to learn the life lesson. Exactly. You know, my daughter's a swimmer. And swimming is an interesting sport. A lot of different parenting styles you see from different places. And it's super competitive. Um, And it's very time-based. And like, you know, there's college admissions and all this stuff associated. Yeah, You can really tell the difference between the kids who swim because they want to and the kids who swim because their parents want them to. Now, Mm -hmm. the kids who swim because their parents want them to do tend to be good swimmers. Like, there is Mm. a certain formula that does work to make them be very high performance. Not fear-driven, but like... They're really driven. They have a lot of things mm-hmm. they want, but they're also crushed when they don't succeed. 
And, you know, my daughter can be crushed when she doesn't succeed, but that's because of, you know, her own internal desires versus us pushing her to do that. And I hope that results in her having a lifetime relationship around swimming versus like something the day she gets into college, she just quits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Thanks for that example. All right. We are about at the end of time. So I'm going to ask you, what's something that you and your wife don't agree on when it comes to parenting? Phones. Oh, tell me more. Tell me more. What about phones? I don't know. I think I can sum it up as a specific thing, but I'm a technologist at heart. I see the good in technology and yep. I know about the bad in it, but I I am more flexible around things like screens and their usage of them, their usage of social media, how controlled should it be, how much privacy should a kid have. We have a lot to work out around that is what I would describe. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't think we've really gotten to a shared view of like what the relationship our kids should have with their devices is. Yeah. How old were your kids when they got devices? So that we agreed on, which was wait a long time. I think if it were up to my wife, she'd wait till they were like 20. We did wait longer than most um, eighth grade, basically. So 13 years old for both. There's a whole movement um, around wait until eighth or something like that. Uh, Yeah. What gets real tricky is it is how the kids communicate. It is very hard if you're in a social circle where everyone has a phone to not have a phone. We were lucky in that a lot of the families in the school that we went to had this wait for eight thing going and waited till eighth grade. So it was not everyone but them. Your kids probably came home and told you everyone has a phone, right? Like that's the thing. We actually made my daughter do a survey because she kept saying everyone has a phone. And I said, great, let me see the data. Because I'm a PI, oh, I, I love see it. the data. I she actually it. ran a Google survey and <laughs> showed us the data and did a graph and was like, here's the situation. And when she did prove that she was the only kid in the class who didn't have at least an Apple Watch, we yeah. said, okay, yeah. we'll consider it. We'll get you a phone. That so, is, you know? I love this. You're teaching her a valuable lesson. Yeah, that's, ama- that's amazing. I love it. I'm doing this. Yeah, if you have data, let's use data. But if we're going to use opinions, let's go with mine, you know? (laughs) That's where we were. I heard a story of a parent who, when their kid comes to ask them if they can download a new app on their device, the parent makes the kid write a one-pager of what the app is, how it makes money, the cycle. Like, anyway the principles behind it and things like that. I was like, wow, that's hardcore right there. So, but I yeah, love the that's survey. a little more than I'm willing to do. Love the survey. Yeah. So we All did right. the survey thing. That's the big thing we disagree on right now, at least. Yeah. Okay. Time for rapid fire. Here we Let's go. Are you ready for it? Here we go. Most indispensable parenting product you have ever purchased. A lock for my office door. Oh, COVID. <laughs> yeah. So I love it. <laughs> Most useless parenting product you've ever purchased. Honestly, all of them. Like, I, you don't need products to be a parent. Like, it blows yeah. my mind that people use so many products to parent. We're like, yeah. I mean, you know how to do this. You don't need shit. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever told one of your kids they're your favorite? No. I always do. You're my favorite son and like uh, get all uh, in, you know yeah. that kind of thing yeah i love it most frustrating thing that has ever happened to you as a dad i don't know everything is so frustrating about being a dad how about most frustrating thing this week that has happened to you about being a dad? 
convincing kids to go to sleep, even though they look like they are exhausted. Just like oh, it oh, is okay. just so frustrating. It's like, it, this is one of those, like you're staring a kid in the face. And you're like, you need to go to bed. And they're like, no, I want to do all their stuff. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What's your go-to dad wardrobe? What you're, you're wearing looking right at now? It. Yeah. Baseball hat to cover up this moppy hair, hoodie of some kind, shorts. Yeah. And Adidas flip-flops these days or slides. Right. That's my go-to dad wardrobe. Did you ever drop one of your kids as a baby? No. Surprisingly. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. And you're in the minority one. there. Um, oh, really? <laughs> I think so. How many parenting books would you say you have had in your house throughout your kid's life? 50. My wife reads a um, lot of books. How many have you actually read cover to cover? Zero. Okay. Favorite ages for your kids? What were the favorite ages of your kids? This one's really hard. I actually like every year is my favorite age. I know that sounds so cliche, but it really is that it's just like every year you learn something new about them. They grow as a human. You like them more. Again, it's not a hundred percent. We've had some really hard years, but like when they get through those struggles, like they're just amazing people. I, I think both of my kids are the best they've ever been right now. Well, what about your least favorite age? I'm going to put you on the spot. It's the COVID year. Oh. 2020 for both kids, yeah. regardless of the age, it was the time. Yeah, it wasn't okay. about the age. It was about, well, when you layer it with being 12 slash 13 and a pre-adolescent, it's really was just a pure nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You kind of already covered this, but screen time, good, bad, indifferent. Sounds like you're pro screen time. I have really complicated views on screen time. I believe that spending time with your friends is the most important thing you can do as a teen because it is the moment at which you're differentiating and finding your world out yeah. there. I do not think texting is worse than talking on the phone, is worse than being face-to-face, -face, et cetera. I don't believe in any moralistic stuff around that. That said, apps are designed to addict and it is it is really hard for a kid in their teens to self-regulate. It is really hard. And I am struggling as a parent to figure out what the right amount of restriction is. Because again, like I described, you gotta figure it out for yourself, but things that feel like addiction are different. It is hard to figure out for yourself that you shouldn't be a heroin addict. <laughs> like yeah, now phones true. aren't that, but they're adjacent. And this is a real struggle for me. Okay. All right, final one. What's your take on minivans? I think the best reason not to have three kids is to never have to have a minivan. I love they do it. not appeal to me in any way. I love it. And with that, we are done. Thank nice. you, Fareed, for coming. I have so appreciated this conversation. Thank you for listening to today's conversation with Fareed Masavat. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and leave me a review. It'll help other people find this podcast. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. You can also stay up to date on my thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening.